0: Welcome to Mississippi Ed Talk, where we discuss the innovative things going on in Mississippi's K-12 schools. I'm your host, Kristen Deckard.
1: And I'm co-host, Emily Creel. In this episode, we take a look at the Mississippi Education Policy Fellowship Program, a nine-month fellowship for education leaders and stakeholders.
0: The program is jointly sponsored by the MSU Office of Research and Economic Development and the Research and Curriculum Unit, in partnership with the Institute for Educational Leadership in Washington, D.C. Mississippi has been a participant for over 20 years and is one of 17 states with EPFP cohorts. Devin Brenner in the MSU Office of Research and Economic Development and I coordinate this program for the state, so for part of the episode, I'll be sitting in the interviewee chair.
1: As Kristen said, I'll start off the episode interviewing her and Devin about the Mississippi cohort and why this fellowship program is meaningful to education leaders. Later on, Kristen and I will talk with Sarah McCann from IEL who is the national coordinator for EPFP. Between the interviews, Dana Seymour presents a research minute about the digital divide in technology access, particularly for rural students and schools.
0: Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. For our first interview today, we're going to
1: change things around a little um, and have Kristen, our co-host, on the other side to be interviewed as part of her coordinating the Mississippi Education Policy Fellowship Program, along with the other coordinator, Devin Brenner, who is a special assistant to the vice president um, in the Office of Research and Economic Development at MSU. Well, uh, thank you both for talking to me today. Glad to be here. Yeah, Sure. So we'll start out with um, what are some of the major aspects of EPFP in Mississippi and how has this program evolved over the years?
2: So uh, EPFP is the the Mississippi chapter of EPFP is a state chapter of a national organization that's operated through the Institute for Education Leadership in Washington, D.C. And nationwide, EPFP works to support education leaders from schools, from higher education, from industry, from nonprofits, um, to help all of those education leaders learn about and learn to engage in education policy, as well as engage in network and support the development of leadership. And um, our Mississippi EPFP has been in existence for over 20 years. It was originally launched down on the Meridian campus of Mississippi State University, and it's had a couple homes since then, and we're housing it now in the Office of Research and at the RCU and um, it has a strong K-12 focus and we're excited to keep going. Kristen,
1: how does EPFP in Mississippi fit within the larger national group?
0: So um, I think there are 13,
2: 19, 19. 19
0: states that have EPFP around the country and each state sort of functions Pretty autonomously so what is an emphasis in in one state might not be an emphasis in another state Uh, programming and that sort of thing is all developed at the state level Uh, curriculum is at the state level however they do all have sort of an overarching goal of uh, that comes from IEL up in Washington that is that we have the three pillars of leadership networking and policy so each state sort of does its own thing to address those three issues um, and so Mississippi fits into the national model that way but we do sort of function autonomously and of course we try to partner with other states and and learn from them and get our fellows engaged with them but um, each state works on its own
1: um Cisa do you work
0: within with other states what's some of the ways that y'all have partnered with other states recently so Mississippi hasn't done a whole lot of partnering with other states but it is something that we're looking at in the future. Um, each each year the coordinators from all the states go to Washington a few times and um, in one of the last meetings uh, met up with the coordinators in Louisiana and hoping to get something maybe going there where our fellows and their fellows can network together. And then of course we our fellows have opportunities to participate in national programming. Uh, One of those is a civil rights learning journey, which is a bus tour through Mississippi and Alabama of various civil rights sites such as churches where um, demonstrations happened or uh, parks or museums, that sort of thing. And that brings together um, EPFP fellows and alumni from various places. So they have opportunities to meet one another, learn from one another, and sort of hear about their different experiences that way. Is there anything I'm
2: maybe missing there? No, except for that, I think we also, as, so I've been a co-coordinator for three years. I was a fellow in 2005. I participated as a fellow, and I became co-coordinator three years ago. Kristen has done it two years two years now, and one of the things we do is learn from other states about how they engage their fellows, and that provides us with a lot of guidance to think about what we might do in our state. So that's another way we partner
1: Um, So you mentioned that there's three national pillars of um, policy, networking, and leadership. How do y'all try to incorporate those um, in your activities and what the fellows are learning?
0: Um, Policy is certainly there in nearly every meeting and most activities that we do. We find a lot that the fellows come to us with not a lot of knowledge about education policy, particularly the big pieces of legislation and how those impact what happens at the school level. So we do spend a lot of time introducing that information and incorporating that. But we try to do that in an interesting way (laughs) by um, incorporating some networking and bringing in speakers and and having panels of various people from the nonprofit sector who might engage in education or perhaps um, people who work at the K-12 or um, higher education level on lobbying for education issues. Think last year we had both someone from Mississippi Department of Education and Mississippi Community College Board come in and talk about how they advocate for certain policy at the legislative level. So we, we try to engage them um, help them learn about policy by building their network with who in, around the state is doing that type of work. Um, so we, we couch those two pillars there. And then leadership, we hope um, they, they learn from each other a lot of leadership skills. And then also we bring in some speakers for them and, and help them sort of do activities and practice building leadership and communication skills.
2: And it's definitely the case, I think, that um, where we're the strongest and where the biggest need is, is really in the policy work. So, um, and the, we, we try to strike a really good balance between um, sort of three things, understanding state policy, understanding national policy, and then understanding how to advocate um, on behalf of your district or your institution of higher learning or for sound education policy and wise investments. And so um, those three aspects of policy You know, one of the things we've really tried to dig into in our last year, and I'm sure we will tackle again, is understanding the teacher shortage and why there's a teacher shortage, how that manifests, what are the things that the state is doing and could do to address teacher shortages, where, if at all, teacher shortage, teacher supply, teacher licensure is a federal issue, um, and really kind of understanding policies like that or issues like that and where they live in national or state policy, as well as um, the kinds of choices that are being made.
0: One thing I think uh, that came out a lot in this last year, and I think was a real learning experience for the fellows, was how much all of those policies are connected to impact the the teacher shortage, how you can address something over here in perhaps the IDEA legislation, which impacts uh, special needs um, students, and how that also impacts teachers in the special needs areas and general ed teachers as well. So I think helping to learn how everything is connected to then address a big issue such as teacher shortage um, is, a, is a real learning point for them.
1: Um, so Kristen mentioned that a lot of times the fellows come in maybe without a lot of that knowledge. Can you talk about what your typical participant um, is, who that person is, or kind of what their knowledge base is coming in?
2: yeah we uh our last cohort I think is pretty representative of the kinds of groups that get together in the state and we had several school administrators, principals, mostly some assistant superintendent level type folks. We also had lots of folks from community college and then we had some higher ed folks some faculty from higher education um, and, and
0: several folks
2: who represent different nonprofits in the state so it was a real interesting mix and that was one of the ways that we the networking was so powerful because, for a principal to meet with folks from a nonprofit and think about how they do their work and vice versa, um, created a lot of really interesting understanding of education systems in our state. But those folks, you know, a typical classroom teacher or a principal is the recipient of a lot of policy decisions, um, but they don't necessarily understand where those come from. Or, you know, I know as a faculty member, uh, I would get real frustrated with requests for my textbooks so early and when i really dug into the higher education act which is the federal set of laws that influence higher education and fund financial aid for example there's a provision in there that says that in order to get financial aid schools must announce their textbooks to their students very early i didn't know it was a federal law um and how it gets sort of filtered down to us at the practice level um that's one of the things that we really help understand people understand
0: Um, I think in terms of a typical participant, uh, like Devin said, this last year I think we had wide representation, and I was particularly interested to see as we divide them out into their groups um, based on their interests that that crossed over. It wasn't like all of the higher ed people clustered together and all of the community college people, but their interests do truly intersect just as their jobs intersect. Um, I think the typical participant is someone who's very invested in education and very interested in wanting to... Um, support education but often doesn't know a whole lot about policy Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a great opportunity to really take the practical applied knowledge from the school um, or the university setting and then sort of learn why we do the things the way we do and if we don't like them how to perhaps go about communicating what would be a better um, avenue for that.
1: How do they get to develop their own interest and work throughout the year, and what kind of content
0: is delivered to them? So in the past, um, we've started off, at least the past couple of years, we started off the first meeting sort of gathering from them the information, and then going back in the second meeting sort of saying, we see some common interest in these areas, and here is potentially a group you can work with. What we're going to do this year is to capture that on the application and try to begin the year um, with them already in groups loosely. I mean, of course, if they're very unhappy with the topic they get assigned, we'll, we'll be happy to move them around. Um, but we're going we try to find common interests, so that they are working in groups. they're not isolated on, a, you, know, all by themselves, but not assigning them too strictly what to work on so that they do get to engage in learning about it as, in something they're truly interested in, not just in something that's assigned to them. Um, So topics that they've worked on in the past have been teacher shortage, teacher pay, um, early childhood education, early childhood. Um, Last year we had a group focused on career tech ed. Um, Another group focused on uh, discipline and equity and discipline um, and behavioral interventions. It's kind of all over, all over the place. But uh, we try to gather from them what they're interested in and then find common ground so we can, get them in you know three or four person groups to work together.
2: And we try to strike a balance between studying and working on your own issue as well as helping people understand both several big issues and what are the big um, conversations going on in the field um, in, in the policy arena as well as um, and the most important part I think is really just to understand the process overall. What are the big packages of bills and how does a bill get made in D.C., if at all, right now? Um, And um, what are the big issues in the state? Of course, last year, there was a lot of conversation while we were meeting about school funding formula and school funding. And we worked on sort of trying to understand what were the key issues around, around those conversations so people could make a more informed decision and think about them more carefully. So, you were both
1: EPFP fellows in the past, um, and you mentioned which years and how long you've been involved.
2: What made you want to become coordinators of this program? So, uh, I, can, I can speak to that a little bit. I, um, it's been, you know, quite a while since I was an actual fellow, but I have stayed engaged in um, state and national policy since then. It's a, kind of an area of research for me thinking about ed policy and the implications of it. And so uh, I'm particularly in my work interested in rural education and policy around, uh, that impacts rural schools, which of course is the majority of our schools in Mississippi, but are not well understood, understood particularly on a national scale. Um, and I served as a fellow in DC, I worked with Senator Cochran for one year, advising um, him and his staff around education issues. And I got to be there when, ESSA was passed, and um, really learned a lot from that experience. That has informed my work, and so the opportunity to be a co-coordinator of EPFB and to communicate that work um, is just—it's super exciting.
0: Um, I've—this is just my second year to be a coordinator, and I was a fellow in sixteen seventeen, um, and towards as I as I got towards the end of my fellowship year I just expressed some interest that if there was an opportunity to continue being involved either in a leadership position or in some other way that I very much wanted to continue that I I've had a I had a great experience as a fellow and um, became connected to the national organization and just sort of wanted to continue growing my own knowledge in education policy but also being able to contribute where my area of expertise was in which is generally in communications. And I felt like that was something that the Mississippi and I think Devin and, and um, other coordinators agree that that was something that the, that the Mississippi cohort could benefit from Mm -hmm. was having some um, more, I guess, broadening our footprint here at the RCU. We have really good, well-established connections in all the school districts in the state from the superintendent level down to the teacher level. So it was a way to be able to, um, I felt like give back and, um, stay involved with the with the program and helping to grow recruitment and, and communications and of course it's super exciting it's been um, a couple of dynamic years in the state in terms of education policy we've had you know some big legislation uh, that has been up for discussion and and then of course um, in the, at the national level with ESSA passing and and some other bills up for re, uh, reauthorization it's um, it's a really exciting time to be involved.
1: Um, structurally, how is the Mississippi chapter or, uh, group, is it just the two of you with support from the university or Mm -hmm. are there any other, um, partners coming in?
2: Just us. (laughs) I I was just curious. Two of us work. We have a lot of support and resources from the national organization. Um, and a big component of the fellowship is a four day conference in DC, Washington, DC called the Washington policy seminar. So any fellow, uh, who is ad- accepted to the program. They 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 meet one day a month uh, in Jackson, and then we go in March to D.C. for this four-day uh, seminar that focuses around a lot of really interesting national policy issues, as well as gives you an opportunity to meet with your congressperson um, or senator. And so... Um, so we have that national support, but then Kristen and I really get to design and implement it here in the state, and we really complement each other in terms of policy expertise. And Kristen's just really helped us grow the program just in the time that she's been working with us. That's really, it's fun. Um,
0: it's fun. Um, although Devin and I are are managing or, or co-coordinating the program now, it as she mentioned earlier, of course, it's been down at Meridian before and at the past Um, The past several years, it's been at the Stennis Institute of Government. Of course, we still draw on expertise from those places, and those alumni are still engaged and get input from them as well.
1: Yep. Um, So looking back at the past and where y'all are going um, with the future, how does this program support the goals and missions from your offices at uh, MSU and then the entire university in
0: general? So here at the RCU um, we do a whole lot of training and um, much of that training is focused on instructional practices some of it is focused on leadership skills as well um, but we connect a lot particularly with CTE administrators and schools who are uh, working with school improvement status or uh, schools who are part of our impact learning network we do a whole lot of training Um, and this program nicely complements that work and, and supports our mission here at the RCU to increase and grow the capacity of educators as a way to directly impact what's happening in schools and students. And so this program, uh, while it's not focused on training for instructional practices, it very much um, supports that work by helping educators to build their capacity in a different way um, and to, to learn about and engage in policy that impacts what they are required to do instructionally in the classroom, Or um, what they are required to do in order to support students Um, so it's it's I think a nice a nice way to to um, support that work but also to blend their knowledge and so they sort of understand the bigger picture of what relates to instructional practice
2: and the office of research and economic development at MSU they have a sort of a twofold mission to support faculty and everyone at MSU to do research and to support economic development and to marshal the resources of the university to support economic development um, here in our community and across the state and region and um, so my work at ORED is particularly around education initiatives and so it's a pretty wide umbrella but supporting things that support schools in our state and I really feel like EPFP is one of those that as um, people who uh, work in and support education systems in our state, better understand all of the systems that impact their work, then those systems can be more efficient and stronger and, and grow, and so it's a really nice part of my work.
1: Um, so y'all are getting ready to go and moving forward with your uh, newest group. How do you see the program continuing to grow um, in the next
0: years? Well, we, we hope that it can That we continue to get the number of fellows uh, that we that we currently have which is about 20. Um, it's a nice group it's a manageable group Um, it's also a a manageable group for them to get to know each other they're not trying to get to know 50 people for example Uh, so we hope that it continues that way and then of course we um, we want our fellows to be engaged with us as alumni and engaged with the national office to um, continue to take what they learn and share that with their colleagues in their current place of work or as they move to other places of work, that that, that um, passion, knowledge, and ability to engage continues beyond just their one fellowship year.
2: Yep. So we're really, um, in addition to continuing the program each year, we are working to engage our alumni network and so that they kind of see each other as resources and keep that networking going on into the future.
1: Oh, well, thank you both for talking to me and letting uh, me lead the interview today. Um, it was great to learn the Mississippi side of this group, uh, and we look forward to talking to others, uh, fellows and the national group as well. Thank you. Thanks.
3: Over the past decade, tech use in U.S. classrooms has increased dramatically. Today's teachers are well-versed in leveraging connectivity to enhance classroom instruction, connect students to a global marketplace of ideas, and motivate learners. While technology use in classrooms does not guarantee student success, the consensus is clear. Interactive and digital learning, when used well, are important tools to support student achievement. The term digital divide was coined almost 20 years ago to describe the ways that schools in rural or high poverty regions were woefully behind their more affluent or suburban counterparts when it came to internet access and technology. The problem of the digital divide looks a little different today. While most schools are connected and teachers are taking advantage of that connectivity to enhance student learning, there are still too many American students without computer access outside of school. In 2016, five million kids in the US reported not having any internet access at home. Researchers have estimated that about 70% of homework given to students requires an internet connection. Imagine a science teacher has assigned a report on Elon Musk's SpaceX program. This is fairly easy homework if you have high-speed connectivity. A student could even make a multimedia presentation with video clips and sound bites. On the other hand, a student without computer or internet access at home would face a significant burden. Information like this is simply not found in a textbook. Unconnected students would have a pretty difficult time completing this assignment. But the problem goes beyond homework. Eighth grade students without computers or internet access at home consistently score lower on math, science, and reading tests they're much less comfortable using this new media to communicate and problem-solve. Although it's popular to describe the younger generations as digital natives, we often ignore that for some students, there's little real opportunity to be part of our everyday tech culture. In Mississippi, these are real problems. Students in poverty are 40% less likely to live in homes with computer or internet access. Living in a rural area often means no internet connectivity at all, or sometimes only through expensive satellite service. A 2015 study found that Mississippi had the lowest percentage of households with computer access in the country, with only 79% reporting that they owned any type of connected device – computer, laptop, tablet, even a smartphone. If we're to prepare our students to become part of the new digital economy, we must do more to ensure that we aren't leaving 20% of our students on the other side of the digital divide.
0: Now we're joined with Sarah McCann, who is the National EPFP Coordinator at the Institute of Educational Leadership in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us, Sarah.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
0: If you could start off and give our listeners just sort of an overview. What is the Education Policy Fellowship Program? What are the goals of the program? Uh, Just kind of big picture. What is it?
4: Sure. So, Education Policy Fellowship Program, or EPFP, is a 10-month professional development experience. Our mission is to develop a diverse and collaborative community of strategic leaders for effective public policy. And to achieve this, our approach is to regularly bring together emerging and mid-level leaders who are currently working in education policy and related fields. Um, By discussing salient issues together and meeting with local officials and community representatives, fellows nuance their understanding of the policy process and contemporary topics in education policy. But it's not only about content knowledge. Fellows reflect and hone their own leadership skills to consider how to effectively implement a policy initiative. They work closely with their state and their national cohort. This um, strategic networking element enables fellows to understand the important players and diverse perspectives in their local context. They learn from those working in other roles and sectors and they form personal and professional bonds that stay with them throughout their careers. Our vision statement comes from the words that fellows most often use to describe their experiences on the program and it is Transform, Empower, Inspire.
1: Could you tell us a little about the history of EPFP um, and how it's kind of changed and evolved over the years?
4: Sure, so it has definitely evolved over time since its creation. We started in 1964, so we're welcoming our 55th cohort this year. Um, The program was originally funded by the Ford Foundation and it began as a response to the explosive growth of the federal government's role in education That resulted from the enactment of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act and related legislation at that time. Initially, the program was called the Washington Internship Experience, and it focused on giving potential policy leaders across the country a one-year experience at the national level to promote an understanding of national education policy landscape. But as education policies rolled out to states and districts, the program adapted to reflect that broadened focus on the state role in education. So it's not just about Washington, D.C. exposure to policymaking. Now EPFP has emerged as a collaboration of state-based partners with the Institute for Educational Leadership here serving as the national office. Another deliberate change that um, we've made over the years was to bring about greater diversity to the fellows participating in the program. IEL and partner institutions really encourage sponsors to find leaders of color, um, to encourage women and diverse group, which is still a priority today, to make sure that our leadership cadre is actually matching the population of America, so as we enter our 55th year, we're really upholding those traditions of EPFP, which have always been about preparing cross-boundary leaders. We know from our conversations with policymakers and practitioners that there's a great need for spaces where people in different roles, different organizations, and of different persuasions can explore challenging education issues together. Um, And we also know that the individuals that are in the trenches really need opportunities to develop their leadership capacities. So we believe that throughout its 55 years, EPFP really has been the vehicle to meet that need.
0: That's really interesting that it started as a way to bring people from the states into Washington and then it evolved into a more state-focused effort. Do you know when about that shift happened or how long it was a Washington experience?
4: Yeah, I would need to double check the dates for you, but it was about 10 years. That's really interesting. Okay. We recognized that education had for a very long time been a state issue. And then for basically the first time ever, we had federal education policy. And so that was actually one of the founding um, missions of the Institute for Educational Leadership, the organization itself, was to really build up the education leadership capacity of people who'd be working on education at a national level.
0: Interesting. So, about uh, how many states participate? How are the states similar or different? Um, you know, how does the EPFP look across the country?
4: Yeah, so we have currently um, EPFP sites in 17 states in the District of Columbia. Every site convenes a diverse cohort, um, but each one is responsive to the local context. And that depends a lot on our partners. So, our host institutions vary from universities such as yourselves. To nonprofits and state-based agencies. And this does shape some of the organization of the policy sessions. And geography also plays a role in content area focus as well as how frequently and where and when people um, convene. But most sites meet monthly to discuss policy issues, and most, most fellows participate in a leadership assessment, most visit their state capital. Um, they all come to the Washington Policy Seminar once a year and for almost every fellow, they participate in a hands-on project or research assignment as part of their EPFP experience.
1: So you just mentioned the Washington Policy Seminar. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how it's meaningful for participants?
4: Yeah, so our fellows attend the Washington Policy Seminar and this is a chance for them to realize that they are part of a national cohort where they come together with over 300 educators from across the country we're also going through this leadership development experience. Um, It's a style of a conference where we have plenaries, breakout sessions, structured networking activities, and participants have the chance to discuss their own experiences. And they often conclude that their policy problems are not totally unique. And even better, they often meet someone who has a great idea or an interest in partnering to solve it with them. Um, The fellows get to participate in a congressional simulation activity where they learn what it's like to be a Hill staffer or an elected official, and most of them meet with their congressperson while in D.C. So this gives them a chance to learn how federal education policy has evolved and is influenced, and as well as to raise their most important concerns and ideas to a national level conversation. Many of them feel that their sessions at state level have really prepared them for this four day experience that they're now equipped with the content knowledge and the confidence and leadership abilities to debate and converse about salient policy issues at this level and they leave feeling empowered and prepared to take on their next project.
0: Tell us a little bit about uh, your national office. How, uh, what do you all do at the national level to um, support the states and perhaps what do you do that's separate from what's happening at the state level?
4: Sure. So here in the national office, I mean, one of the key roles that we do is just keeping everything moving. So we have our website, epfp.iel.org, and we have our Twitter and our Facebook accounts. And so these are places where our fellows can go for resources and information about EPFP-related events, as well as policy updates and resources about leadership and networking. Um, So we do send those out as well in a monthly newsletter to fellows and also to our alumni, which provide them this content and connect the network together. Of course, we also put on the Washington Policy Seminar, the capstone event. Um, And we do convene the professional learning network of site coordinators, such as you. So this ensures that our program leaders also have the most up-to-date policy content knowledge, as well as the continuous learning and upskilling necessary to advance leadership development in the 21st century. And it's not just about fellows and coordinators that we serve, we also provide learning opportunities and professional development for alumni of the program and the general public interested in nuancing their views of education policy. So some examples of that include the civil rights learning journey, our global EPFP senior fellowship and our alumni blog and webinar series, which are, you know, available and open to anybody who's interested in these key tenets that EPFP fellows get to explore.
1: Um, What would you say are some of the highlights of the Mississippi program um, over the years?
4: So the Mississippi EPFP program maintains a strong and important identity uh, within our EPFP sites, and I think it's very grounded in your local context. The state program focuses on a rural perspective and consistently engages community college administrators, and so there's a lot of value that you add by bringing these conversations to the national cohort and making sure they stay on the radar, especially as they Continue to grow and perceived relevance nationally. Um, and the Mississippi EPFP program also gave birth to the Civil Rights Learning Journey, which is a programmatic element of URLs that we've now expanded to invite fellows, alums, and other education leaders from across the country to participate in. And this bus tour runs from Jackson, Mississippi to Birmingham, Alabama. It's led by Roscoe Jones, who's a Mississippi native and a civil rights leader, and Tyson-Albert, now with Advocacy Build, Together, they've created a professional development experience, tying together the historical elements of the summer of 1964 with the opportunities and responsibilities that those of us working in education have to increase civic engagement, advocate for justice, and broaden our thinking about public policy, which is really powerful stuff. Um, and Mississippi has been a proactive partner and collaborator in working with other sites in the national office to further the overall EPFP experience for everybody, not just your own site.
0: Uh, so thinking ahead, uh, what would you say is on the horizon for EPFP nationally? Are there new states coming on board or do you see major curriculum changes um, or things sort of rocking along the same?
4: Yeah. Okay. So we're really excited. I uh, jump the jump gun because I'm just so excited uh, <laughs> to welcome Texas as an EPFP site starting in 2019. So nice. we're going to have a new program, well, a new state program based at Texas Tech University which is a Hispanic-serving institution located in Lubbock, Texas. They were also recently ranked number five, best online college for students with disabilities as well. So this site was initiated by a North Carolina EPFP alum who's now on faculty there. So it's great to bring in a new site, but it's also an example of our passionate and committed alumni. So we're really pleased to start working with them and to be able to expand the program to a new cohort. in addition to growing the EPFP program into a truly national fellowship, we are also working on intentionally expanding our alumni engagement work. This is starting with the development of an alumni council by for alums to kick off the alumni relations work. This is a new area of focus for EPFP nationally because we recognize that after 54 years of doing this program, we're in touch with a pretty amazing network of leaders. So we're interested in working more intentionally with those of you out there committed to leveraging your expertise for education equity in particular. And EPFP continues to provide that space and opportunity to work with the personal and professional connections that you've made throughout your careers and experiences to do impactful work in the field of education and public policy.
1: So if our listeners want to learn more about EPFP, um, where can they go and um, where can they find out about any other programs that IEL administers?
4: Thanks for asking. Um, Of course, all of our policy leadership and networking resources from our monthly newsletters are publicly available on our EPFP website. So that's epfp.iel.org. On the top menu, it says apply, which you can click on to see all the different sites where we're in and to join the program or learn more and connect with your state site. sites also where we feature webinars and our other professional development opportunities. So for those interested in education policy or who have graduated from the program and can't get enough, you can click on our alumni menu and see all of our additional um, resources and courses. And you can follow um, our Twitter, which is at EPFP underscore IEL to stay abreast of these items and IEL's other work. Um, One of the biggest benefits of being linked into EPFP really is connecting to IEL's networks and programs. Most EPFP alums are interested in cross-sector transformative leadership, in addition to their everyday jobs as practitioners, and we have so many resources to support you in both of these areas. On our organizational website, IEL.org, we have links to our Coalition for Community Schools, District Leaders Network on Family and Community Engagement, National Collaborative on Workforce and Disability for Youth, Appalachian Higher Education Network, and examples of our mentoring programs and TA centers. And if there's something that you don't see that you think would be great to partner or to share that you have questions about, I also encourage you to get in touch. Uh, you can get in touch with me or you can go through the website to find out how you can be better LinkedIn. but take a minute to explore because many people are, super, are really surprised by how many initiatives are housed at IEL. Though they spam the education to workforce continuum, they're all about taking a cross sector approach to leadership for the ultimate benefit of youth families and communities. So we'd love to talk about more ways to partner even beyond the Education Policy
1: Fellowship Program. Okay, thanks. Um, we'll make sure to share those links in our show notes so that uh, listeners can find that easily.
0: So one thing you mentioned earlier was the civil rights learning journey, and I went on that in January, and it was it was a really meaningful experience. I think a, a lot of Mississippians would be interested in, in joining in on your next one. Can you tell us when is that happening, and, and how can people find out more information? Yes,
4: so we are doing a civil rights learning journey again, and the dates are November 25th to 28th, 2018. Registration is still open until October 1st or until the bus is full, and you can learn more or register from our IEL website, iel.org slash civil-rights-learning-journey It's under our events page on the homepage. Um, and here you can see more information about the itinerary, the rates and dates, and our partners who are the National After School Association. There's also some testimonials and further resources to explore there. All right, well,
0: we really appreciate you stopping by and telling us a little bit about National
4: EPFP, and uh, we hope you have a good afternoon. Thank you. We're really excited about our 55th cohort and to see what comes out of Mississippi EPFP this year. for joining
0: us for a discussion about the Mississippi EPFP. Since our interviews, the 2018-2019 cohort in Mississippi has been named, and they have begun their year of learning about policy, leadership, and networking. If you would like more information about the program or are interested in applying for a future cohort, please visit rcu.msstate.edu EPFP.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to Mississippi Ed Talk on your favorite podcast app so that you get episodes as soon as they're released each month. Show notes for this episode can be found at rcu.msstate.edu slash
0: msedtalk.
1: Until next time, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at RCUMSU.
0: Mississippi Ed Talk is a production of the Mississippi State University Research and Curriculum Unit and is hosted by Kristen Deckert and Emily Creel. Thanks to Amanda Gronwald for editing and platform support and to Dana Seymour for contributions to this month's episode.